Steven Tyler, who is just like this spinning top of energy. And he's everything that you would imagine him to be. But here's the thing that's really amazing, to be in your room and to hear his vocals come through your speakers and to look through the glass and see him standing behind your U-47. You go, wow, that's Steven Tyler, you know? He really does sound like that. It's pretty remarkable. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hello, rock stars. It's your host, Lid Shaw, and welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars. I created this show to introduce you to real world recording professionals to hear their stories and learn from their experiences so that you can take your records to the next level and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Roger Allen Nichols, a producer, recording engineer, rock musician, and songwriter from Nashville, Tennessee. He is owner of Belltone Recording in Berry Hill, where he produces great-sounding rock. In fact, when I recorded my record Skadoosh, which includes the track American Winner on the Mixmaster Bundle, I turned to Roger for guitar tones, borrowing the Bogner and the Bassman guitar amp heads for my sounds. Roger started out in Nashville with his band Dreaming in English as an artist and later moved to production and engineering after Pro Tools made it possible for him to create a professional home studio. He has since moved to this beautiful commercial location at Bell Tone Recording and records with all kinds of artists. Some of the rock stars that Roger has written for, performed with, produced, or recorded are Paramore, Mixmaster Mandy, Seal, Ryan Humbert, Robin Ford, The Mean Tambourines, The Campaign 1984, Tyler Bryant, and Steven Tyler. Please welcome Roger Allen Nichols to Recording Studio Rockstars. Roger, my man. (laughs) You know what I'm about to ask you, right? What's that? Are you ready to rock? I'm ready to rock. (laughs) Awesome, dude. You should be. Of all the people I know, you should be the most ready to rock. Oh, geez. So, dude, I've introduced you. In my way, can you introduce yourself in your own words and tell us more about who you are and how you got to be here? I mean, you pretty much summed it up. You know, I had a band and been in band since third grade. Tell us about your third grade band. Oh, geez. Um, what was that even like? That was that was actually starting on that guitar right behind you. See that guitar right there? That little uh, high strung? This one right here? Yep. That was, it's at a high strung now. Nice. So uh, that was my mom's guitar. I, when I first heard an electric guitar being played by this guy named Jim Hess, I was drawn to it like a moth to fire. I went home and I, my mom had that guitar my dad had given her for Christmas. And I, I confiscated it and started learning chords from a guy down the road. You know, I stole my mom's fiddle. Are you serious? And her mandolin. And her piano. And her piano. <laughs> that is a stunning piano too. That it, oh, well, the fact that you can play those things alone are... are well, you know. You know. Well, I, mean, I faked my way around the piano. There's a lot out there that uh, you, that you guys in podcast land don't know about Lidge, man. He's a pretty, pretty gifted individual. Thanks, man. Well, so third grade band, rocking out. With some of my best friends, and we kept it together all the way through my senior year in high school. Same, same guys from mm-hmm. third grade to high school? Mm-hmm. 
we had a couple of, couple of personnel changes like but just the core of us was there were four of us that were the core band we stayed together and when we were getting ready to graduate the band was disbanding and and they held had a little uh little assembly for the band, a little farewell concert. It was pretty funny. <laughs> I remember seeing photos of you holding an SG and playing at like in an outside show, outdoors show or something. Actually, that was my my very dear friend, uh, Dr. Mike Hess. He bought an SG or his dad got him an SG if he took piano lessons when he was in, I think, junior high. As a matter of fact, it was really funny because it was a beautiful cherry red SG. He wanted to add a pickup and change it to a walnut color. So we refinished that guitar. I kind of helped him refinish it and install the third pickup. We didn't know what the hell we were doing, but it was- So you uh, just stripped the red paint off it. <laughs> like it was just, it was kind of brutal, but uh, it turned out quite nice. And, and Mike is, Mike was probably the most talented one out of all of us. I mean, he was just an amazingly, you know, amazing uh, musician and still is. Roger Stone King, who was a very dear friend of mine who just passed away a month and a half ago. He was the bass player. And then Rob Balsley, who I haven't been in touch with in years, was the drummer. Wow. And uh, yeah, so that that's kind of where we got our start, you know. And in high school, actually in junior high, is when I started recording. I had a realistic reel, reel that uh, I would start recording stuff on. And, and some friends of mine, uh, John and Joe Pintai, they're these twin brothers in West Virginia that are good friends of mine too that I still keep in touch with. They're the ones that really turned me on to recording because these two guys were so obsessed with, they had always had the best hi-fi gear. I mean, that's the thing I loved about those guys. They, whatever it was, it was the best. And it always sounded amazing. And we used to go over to their house and they would record us on a cassette deck and we'd do tape delays and do all this kind of bizarre stuff. And that's what really piqued my interest. And then I got a reel to reel and then I was off to the races. Nice. Tell us about, I know you also had a whole story of, you sort of got into professional touring pretty early on. Yeah. I toured, really with this, with stuff, I right? toured with this company out of Florida that produced bands that toured high schools. You know, as a young songwriter, this was probably the best thing that's ever happened to me. We did three to five shows a day for 10 and a half months straight. And it was touring high schools. It was doing assembly shows at high schools. And one of the things that we did, uh, or that we had to do, was we had to learn you know, a song or two a week off the top 40. And depending on the area that we were in, whether or not it was Louisiana, Detroit, or Alaska, or, you know, Quebec, or wherever we were, we would have to do what was hot in the area. So as a young songwriter, you know, we're, we're always, you know, always learning how to play these songs that were hits. And that's, that's kind of fascinating, because now you would just think that something would just be hot in all areas. If it's hot on Spotify or YouTube, it would be hot in all those places. Yeah, and it's not that way, though. Like, I remember in Louisiana, we were playing schools that were 98% black. And we were playing in schools in downtown Detroit that were all leather jackets, you know? So you'd be playing in these schools in downtown Detroit, and they'd want to hear Ozzy Osbourne. And then you'd be playing Louisiana, and they'd want to hear Earth, Wind, and Fire. Interesting. So, yeah, wow. so, you know, we'd have to kind of, we'd have to really kind of pay attention to that you learn these songs on the road between gigs or you yeah. learn them before you hit the road? Yeah, there's re there really two things that happened on the road in those early years for me that really helped, helped me understand a lot about songwriting and, and putting songs together. First being that we had to constantly learn hit songs. You know, you start to identify things in songs that, that you go, oh, this is why this song's a hit. Yeah. You know, listen to this lyric and how this works with a chorus or... You know, listen to this riff and how how the chorus pays off or listen, you know, 
listen to this or that, you know? And then the second thing that happened in 1981, I had my parents co-sign a loan for me for 1300 bucks and I got a Fostex four track. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it was, it was. Co-sign a loan for 1300 bucks for, for a Fostex four track. And it was gigantic. It was huge. And I had this case built for it. I would spend, I mean, literally we'd be on a, you know, we'd leave the hotel at 6.30 in the morning and we'd get home at 11 at night and I would sit up at night or on weekends or whenever I had any free time and I would write songs and I would use the four tracks to kind of work on arrangements and stuff and guitar parts. And as I started to learn how parts work together and how tones can work together, you know, it was a, it was a very interesting period as I look back at it. There's, you know, there's parts of that time period to me felt like a waste, felt like lost years. But some of the stuff that I learned as far as playing those songs and learning those songs and then having the discipline to work on the four track every night or, you know, on the weekends and stuff, you know, even being exhausted, you don't want to do that. But I was so enthralled with that technique, double tracking guitars and trying to figure that stuff out that I learned a hell of a lot. So this four track had the mixer built in and mm -hmm. everything. It was just like an all in one kind yeah, of deal. All in one. Yeah. And then if you needed to do a mix, you'd print it off to cassette. Yes. I printed it off to a cassette player. Nice. Yeah. It had a little boom box. I think I can't remember. It's like 81 and she, that's a long time ago. How'd you end up in Nashville? Some of the guys that I had met through this company were in Boston. And I was living in Atlanta at the time. I'd just gotten off the road and was living in Atlanta for about three years. And uh, was playing with an artist down there and, and doing some session work and was going to school and just doing some, you know, just trying to figure out my next step in life. And a couple of the guys that I had toured with were in Boston. And one of them had gone to Berkeley, or a couple of them actually had gone to Berkeley. And they had decided to put a band together and they said, okay, uh, we want you to play guitar. We're thinking, you know, either New York, Nashville, or LA. We couldn't figure out where to go. And so we decided to move to Nashville. And that was uh, September 1st, 1989. Two yeah. years before I got here. Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, it was, you know, at that time, it's like Tommy Walmack says in the Cheese Chronicles. He says, you know, playing rock and roll in Nashville is like trying to set a Methodist church up in the middle of Mecca. You know, <laughs> it was... For those of you that may hear this that are in Nashville now and, and know what the climate's like now, it's considerably different, you know, and it wasn't really until October of 2009 that we got a real taste of what this town could be like as far as rock goes. And that's yeah. because Paramore had the number one rock album in the country and Kings Leon had the number one single. Yeah. And now Nashville is like Mecca for rock. This place, you can't, there's no competition for this place. LA would like to think they can compete, but there's no way. I mean, the musicianship here in town, the ability to write, the emphasis on writing, the emphasis on recording, the recording arts, the facilities that we have here, the cost of living. LA's a lot of style, little substance in some areas. That sounds a little judgmental. And I'm, I, it just seems like Nashville, man, people get to work, people roll their sleeves up and do it. You know, I remember writing with this female artist, this buddy and I, we wrote two songs and demoed two songs, wrote them and demoed them in, in one day. And then the next day we wrote another song and demoed it. And on the third day, she was so exhausted that she couldn't write. She was just like, and we were talking to her like, well, you know, what's it like in LA? She goes, well, it takes about a week to write a song. You know, we hang out some, you know, and it's like a week. Are you freaking kidding me? Who's paying for that? Who's paying for that shit? Well, right on. Well, so, hey, can you kick us off on the podcast here with an inspirational quote, something to kind of get us psyched up about recording? You know, it's funny you sent that to me, and the only thing I could think of is 
uh, in relationships to, you know, with technology the way that it is, with technology providing opportunities for people to record and to write and to create art. The thing that I always, is always in the back of my head is just because you can doesn't mean you should. That I think is one of the biggest obstacles right now with music is the fact that technology has allowed us to create really great stuff, great sounding stuff with no filter. Now, I love mm -hmm. that. From an, art, from an artist standpoint, that's the way it should be, completely 100%. And the way the business is now, the gatekeepers are gone and everyone applauds that. But the bad news is the gatekeepers are gone. So there's a lot of stuff out there that's really mediocre. A lot of stuff that's put out that should be developed better. You know, when you, th when you speak of just because you can doesn't mean you should, I immediately think of playlists and Pro Tools. And oh, like exactly. Adding, doing more and 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 more, more, more without thinking. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I love. You know, I don't know if we talked about this or not, but Richard Dodd, I've gotten to know over the last couple of years, and I just love him. He's like, he is such a wealth of knowledge. I call him Richard God. <laughs> I like to refer <laughs> to him as Yoda. Yoda. <laughs> you know, he just has these great insights. The two things that he told me a while back that stick with me all the time are Apple Z or Undo has replaced Oh Fuck. Right. You know, it used to be when you sit behind a tape deck, when you hit record, you had to make sure that you knew what you were doing because if you erase something on accident, there was no recovering it. Right. You might lose your job. Exactly. And the other thing that he said that, which I thought was really interesting, is the way records are made now compared to the way records used to be made. And the way records are made now are we send files around. Like I'll get a track and I'll record a guitar part and I'll make sure it's really nice sounding and full and blah, blah, blah. And then I send it off to someone else and they'll add something. And then whoever, you know, whenever they start to mix it, whoever mixes it, you end up carving the hell out of it EQ-wise to try to make it work in the context of the mix. And the way records used to be made is a band would set up in a room Decisions were made about placement of amps and mics and so on and so forth. And then the snapshot was taken. And if you soloed the guitar, if you soloed the drums, or if you soloed something, it might sound really shitty by itself, but in context sounded amazing. So it was about the complete photograph as opposed to the individual in the photograph. Now everybody's trying to Photoshop themselves in the, in the big picture. Yeah, everyone tries to take the best photograph possible, the best selfie and when it comes time to mix it, it's like, okay, well, shit, you know, what do we do with this thing? Let's carve the hell out of this guitar now just to be able to make it, to make it work. Yeah. So it's, it's a different type of philosophy in recording. Well, we should definitely get deeper into some mixing talk here in, in just a moment too. But before we head over there, how about sharing with us an important failure story for you? Something where it all kind of fell apart, but turned out to be a great learning experience. I looped a console once. You looped a console <laughs> once? You mean like feedback loop? Yeah. That was nice. Yeah. I was, blow uh, up? Smoke come out? No, almost. I mean, the, uh, at this school and they were teaching audio and I was uh, working with the instructor. His name was Mike Stone, who's no longer with us. And he turned his back for a second and I went to the patch bay and plugged something in. And then next thing I know, it was like, it was coming Holy through the speakers. Too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And all I remember is Mike jumping across the room with his hands extended like midair to the patch bay to pull the cords out. And then I got the Royal pep talk from Mike. It's like, right. don't you ever, there's so many failures. I mean, I I've had so many failures as a producer. I think one of the, the easiest failures to make is to not listen to the artist. 
that I think is a common mistake, especially if you have artistic visions or perspectives. It's easy to go, well, really what you need is this. I have learned the hard way that that is not a good thing to do. Right. Or you want to know better. Yeah. It's you just easy. You want to be good at what you fucking do. You want to be good at what you do and you want to be able to contribute to the vision. And a lot of times you just stay out of the way and let, and help facilitate the vision. You don't, you don't, um, it's not about contributing to the vision from a, an artistic statement or having an artistic voice, but it's creating an environment for the artist to find out what their voice is. I've had a lot of failures in that spot because again, you know, I played in bands and wrote songs and have done stuff and you sit down with an artist and it's early on, I think I was probably dismissive of what a lot of artists may have wanted to try to do. Those are huge mistakes. What about um, engineering mistakes? I mean, you listed the patch bay one, but something maybe that is, that is common that might happen in the process of, uh, of trying to create records. Also, you mentioned, you know, recording each track like it's supposed to be the big and beautiful thing yeah. that doesn't know where the song's headed. I mean, there's, there's so many things you and I were talking before we started recording this podcast. One of the, you know, I get files and sessions from all over the place. And, you know, there's like, there's a couple of clients that I know that will send me stuff and it's 2444. And there's other clients that I may not be so familiar with that they'll send me something in 48, 24. And I've even gotten sessions in 96, 20, and it's just like, holy shit, trying to download that stuff takes forever, you know? It's like, you call them up, can you just ship me the hard drive, please? Can you just send an MP3? <laughs> I've made rookie mistakes of recording stuff at mixed sample rates and then realizing that, you know, the oh man, I just screwed up. You know, and the client's in the room looking at, you know, going, how come this sounds like, when you print the mix, it sounds like we're all have had too much cough syrup. <laughs> <laughs> should I should I tell that story again? I was just telling you. Oh yeah. 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 So so all right, yes. I'll jump in and share one. <laughs> this is great. So I had an intern in the studio. This one's for you, Stone Cold. Shout out to you. Stony. Uh, great, great dude. Awesome dude. Love that guy. He was one of our first best interns too. And he owns it's, one of my favorite guitars that I've ever owned. Oh, nice, man. Yes. We were doing a tracking session together and we were two days of tracking and we got through the first day and everything went like clockwork was sounding great. You know, our band was super happy with it. I'd been recording everything at 24, 48 all day long. And then I split, I like to be done at six, take the evening off. So, so we took the evening off and then Stone had asked me, he was like, hey, you know, I got a buddy. Can I drop in and show a buddy the studio? And I was like, sure. Yeah. Sounds great. Cause I love to let the interns, you know, have access to the studio <laughs> like that. And so we, that was fine. You know, no problem. Go back in the next day and tracking all day long and we get to the end and all of a sudden I look over and this was on my old system. So I had a uh, separate clock, an ArdSync clock where you had to select the sample rate and it would, didn't matter what Pro Tools was calling the sample rate. You had to manually change the clock for it to actually match it. And so I look over and I was like, why, why is the clock at 441? <laughs> <laughs> and I look over and poor, poor Stone, he was like, oh, oh shit. Oh. Apparently they had come in and they wanted to pull up iTunes to listen to some music on the speakers or something. And his buddy had just reached over. And when it was, when iTunes was playing at 48 through the system, he had reached over and just like changed it to 44.1. 
and <laughs> just done that, you know, like first time in the studio. Needless to say, I let um, I let my intern know that that his buddy was never <laughs> ever invited back to the studio again, and uh, make no. Unless no he was a paying customer. It. Unless he was a paying customer. That's totally different. You can change the sample rate to whatever you want. That's right. <laughs> so what happened, of course, was we recorded half the songs on one day at 48 and the other half in a 48K session at 44.1. So everything was playing at the wrong speed when I would go to actually yeah. bounce down the mix. And then you play it back, the MP3, and everything's all screwed up. It's the worst. That is the worst. And there is a solution. I won't go into the solution for this, but let's just say you have to force the sample rate back yeah. to the right thing. So or do or mix, do your mix, you know, your and print it to burn it to a two-track and call right. it a good day. Well, so now share with us a moment of success, something where it all came together really nicely for you. Well, I remember you told me a great story about going off and playing with seal you want to tell that story well that was fun a buddy of mine is his name is josh harris he's from st louis he's an amazing producer and remixer and just a great guy and just i think uh, i know josh is he using studio one now yeah yeah josh. I know josh he's a cool guy yeah he's a great i mean just a great guy just ultra talented too for a while he was doing a lot of remix stuff and there's a lot of stuff that he would send me to to add guitar on what i would do is, you know, he would send me the session and say, you know, do your thing or whatever. And there was a seal track that we played on or that he, he had produced, sent to me. I put some guitars on it. I was kind of irreverent with my guitar parts and sent the, had a bass player out of Boston do the bass lines. Anyways, seal liked the track so much, he hired all of us to go out to play with him. That's great. It's and, funny how that works when you're irreverent. People yeah. like your work better. Yeah, it was really funny. It, and that's what I love about Josh because Josh is always like, just do your thing. You know, I had a conversation with him tonight, actually. There's a couple guitar parts I just did for him, and he called back. He was very specific about what he needed. There are times when he's that way, and there's times when he's a little more like, just do your thing and do something interesting or whatever. You know, that was fun. There's a group signed to Sony Australia named the Veronicas. This is oh, cool. This was a fun thing. So we were working in the studio here. It was me, Tyler Bryant, and Lisa Veronica. These two sisters, they're twins, Lisa and Jess Veronica, and uh, they were signed to Warner for years, and they had... 2007, 2008, they were on quite a roll then, and they're still just putting out great records and just really amazing singers, stunning singers. Tyler had brought Lisa by the studio, and we were writing, and we had written a couple things prior to this. So it was pretty comfortable. We were just sitting around, and we were trying to write something, and it just wasn't clicking. We had like a verse and a chorus idea, but we were kind of trying to go for something that was kind of pop, and it just wasn't quite working. But I had this idea... You know how most ideas are kind of like someone whispering something in the back of your head and you, you kind of pay attention to it, but you don't know quite what it is yet. So you just kind of got to go, all right, let me just work on this on a sec, you know, for a second. So what we did is I set up a mic and Lisa sat right there and we just ran the, a loop and, and she sang the lines for about eight minutes, just set, kept singing the lines over and over and over and over again. And about four and a half, five minutes into it, she was doing stuff that was really cool, you know, changing, changing up the melody and doing these cool little ad libs and stuff. So they left the studio and I went into edit mode and kind of sorted through the eight minutes of audio clips and assembled this track that was built on, the, on what I envisioned the trajectory of the track being. They came back the next day and I said, let me play this for you. This is kind of an idea. And they heard it and they're like, oh, oh, okay, this is great. Let's do this. So we kind of rewrote a couple of lyrics. Lisa sang some stuff. Her sister heard it. Jess 
she loved it. She came into town. She added, uh, we changed some lyrics around. She sang a part. Next thing you know, it was the lead cut on their debut record for Sony Australia. And that was a really fun, happy accident. You know, because we were all kind of sitting around looking at each other going, well, hell, it felt like nothing was happening, but then something happened and it would ended up being a pretty cool thing, you know? Nice. So, so that was fun. That was a fun. That sounds awesome, man. Yeah. Well, it's nice to see a success story with a band like that where it kind of comes together and it becomes the forefront single to lead a tour like that, you know? Yeah, they, oh, it never was a single. The song is too weird. Um, if you were to hear the song in context with what they do, I don't think it's a good representation of what they do, you know, more of a pop focus. But it was a cool reintroduction, like, hey, this is, it was just kind of had an edge to it, the track right. did. And well, I like the way you described looping it, taking your your creative mindset into a place where you start not knowing what's going on and things start coming out differently. It's like if you say the same word over and over and over yeah. and over 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 and it starts sounding different to you. Exactly. You know? Exactly. So that's, that's a good way to keep the creative process going. Yeah. It's, you know, you don't know. Sometimes you just got to throw paint against the wall like Jackson Pollock and, and hope that, you know, you see something like the Shroud of Turin, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day. <laughs> well, so can you tell us about working with Steven Tyler in here too? You know, I saw him as he was arriving at your studio. I was pulling that's up right. next door and I looked over and I saw some dude lean out of a car and my brain went, huh, that's funny. It looks just like Steven Tyler. Sounded <laughs> like him too. And then I just drove off. I've got two clients that are two brothers, the Warren brothers out of Florida, and they've gone on to write just some huge songs, you know, for Tim McGraw and just all kinds of people. So they wrote three songs with Steven Tyler and they brought him over here to cut the vocals. What we did is we came over here and we did the demos first. I programmed some loops. They kind of added some guitar parts and then Steven sang the vocal and then we put some harmonies on and then we sent the files over to Chris Utley at Benchmark and they brought in Iliad and a bunch of the session guys came in and they cut the track and then sent the files back to me and then we kind of changed a couple, tweaked a couple things and then I mixed the tracks. But to have him here for two days cutting vocals on those songs, we did three songs total was just awesome. Did you guys put scarves on the mic stand? <laughs> I'll tell you what, man. There's a couple of stories which I can't really... Can't share them all. I yeah. can't share them all. But, but we're not, It's not rated that explicit. <laughs> I got to tell you though, man. First of all, the energy level in this room, when, when Brad and Brett Warren come into this room, the energy level goes from about, you know, wherever it's at to 250. Because those guys are just on 10 all the time. I mean, it is... It would be worth calling them up and saying, look, I'll give you 500 bucks to hang out with you for the day because you would be so entertained. Those guys are just unbelievable. So you have their creativity and energy level. And then you have Steven Tyler, who is just like this spinning top of energy. And he's everything that you would imagine him to be. But here's the thing that's really amazing is to sit here, first of all, to, to be in, a, in your room and to hear his vocals come through your speakers and to look through the glass that's and see him standing behind man. your U47, you go, wow, that's damn Steven Tyler, you know? It's like, pretty, wow. He really does sound like that. It's pretty remarkable. A couple things struck me is, is how hard he worked. Like he would say, hold on a second, and you could hear him 
practicing the first line into the song and he would you know be changing his vowel sounds and practicing a couple different approaches and then he would pick a direction and he'd say all right let's go for it and then he'd step up to the mic and sing but he worked really hard wow and that was impressive to see and a guy at his age who really he doesn't have to do anything you know he could just sing dream on the rest of his life and make more money than most of us could ever dream of seeing. But he works, he works really hard. And then the second thing that really blew my mind is the first day he was here, his assistant was a guy named AJ and AJ was going, Hey, Steven, we got to go. Come on. We're supposed to get out of here by seven. They were going from here down to the arena to see Stevie wonder. And Steven actually got up and sang with Stevie that night. But AJ was going, come on, Steven, we're going to be late. And Steven, you know, he grabbed that guitar right there and he's like, oh, check this out. He's like doing these weird things. And this is another song I'm writing. And he's like playing all these songs that he's writing. And and to see this kid, it's to see this guy so excited about creating music at 60 plus years old, rock and roll hall of fame, amazing career to seem so excited about making music still was inspiring. It's you know? like you back when you were younger with your Tascam four track. Oh, ex- exactly. Oh, and the other thing too that I thought was really fascinating is you would think he's not paying attention, but he is. You know, like he'll turn around and go, you know, as you're leaving the second day, it was like, oh, by the way, you know, I can't remember what the exact example was, but the example that, I, that I'll use is, oh, and that song, uh, the keyboard player in bar five of the first verse, he plays a B minor chord. If you would go to bar eight in the second verse, the, there's a suspended B there. Take that B and fly it into the, you know. So it's like, you just kind of look at him like, okay. Like, <laughs> like you would think something that he wasn't even paying attention to and he is like on it. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly how to do it. And he made everyone feel incredibly comfortable. And it was just, it was really one of the funnest couple of days ever. It was just, I just, you know, was just blown away at how amazing he was. That's cool, man. That's cool. Yeah. So very cool stuff on the topic of Tyler. Any other Tylers you'd like to talk about? Something you're excited about? One of the most favorite Tylers ever is Tyler Bryant and his band, Tyler Bryant and the Shakedown. Tell us about working with Tyler. Give us a little bit of a story about how that started you know, the process of creating music for you guys and the result. I was repped at one point by this guy named Dave. Dave knew Tyler's manager. The two of them were talking. Tyler was, I think he was 17 at the time, had just moved to town. And they were like, these guys should meet. They should work together. So we met and hung out. And Tyler, Tyler is such an amazing guy. He can play the shit out of a guitar, can he? It's it's insane. I don't even like to get near a guitar when he's in a room. It's just like I feel embarrassed even hold one. You know what I mean? It's just like, oh, geez. And, you know, we went to lunch, hung out, and then we started the process of doing his first EP. I mean, there's so many great stories about this kid. I could do a podcast just on, on how many times he has blown my mind as far as his work ethic. And not just his work ethic and his level of talent, but also... Oddly enough, his thoughtfulness and consideration too. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows what he wants. In my opinion, he is exactly what it takes to be a successful artist. You have to be laser focused. You have to fight for what you want. You have to be good at what you do and you have to put in the work. And Tyler's all of those things. His band is all of this. You know, his whole band, Caleb Crosby, Graham Whitford, who's the son of Brad Whitford from Aerosmith and Noah Denny, those those guys are just 
great guys first and foremost and they're an amazing band they play together well there's a great chemistry there they're all supremely talented it's freakish talent too it's the kind of talent where you know one day we wrote a song and and Caleb was out of town doing a gig or something, and we needed to, to lay down a drum track. And Noah, the bass player, sat down behind a drum kit and just killed it. I mean, just a stunning drummer, you know? Graham can do the same thing. He can sit down behind a drum kit and kill it. And they play guitar, bass, they all, you know, sing. It's a cavalcade of talent. So what does that mean in the studio when you're recording? Do you think it's important when musicians can play more than one instrument and they understand all the other instruments? Or have you had experiences where with musicians where all they knew was their one thing and it was so great as a result of that? I don't think there's a, a solid answer to that. I no, really no think it depends. No rule about it or anything. Yeah, I really think, you know, I think obviously if you play more instruments, it allows you the ability to communicate ideas a little clearer. There's a young band that I've been working with for the last couple of years who are turning out to be in a you know, quite a great band and are starting to experience some success. They're called Jet Black Alley Cat. Just really a great group of guys, again, talented. They work really hard. And one of the things that we, you know, one of the biggest hurdles that we've had is developing our communication. Joe, the lead singer, is like, is getting him to be able to express what his vision is in a way that I can understand it. And for me to be able to communicate with him in a way that he can understand it. You know, and I think that that's, that is the biggest responsibility and hurdle for anyone who's producing something is to be able to communicate and bring to life those ideas. And that's, that's difficult sometimes. Yeah. You know, back to Tyler, I did his first EP and then uh, he did the second one himself with Vance Powell recording and Vance produced his third one, which is out on Universal he came to the studio. They, it was funny because I think Universal, they were going to do an EP and then they did the first half of it and Vance just killed it. I mean, the guy's just... He's pretty good at what he does. On another damn level altogether. Just, you know, and he's a great guy too. So anyways, he killed it. First half of the EP sounded amazing. So Universal said, great, let's do a record. So Tyler came over. There's like a four, three or four day window and Tyler came over one day during that window and we wrote three songs just did real quick demos and stuff. Anyways, two of them ended up on the record. The first one was the first single, the first U.S. single. And then the second one was the first U.K. single for the band. And they're in, in Europe right now touring, opening for ACDC. Wow. So it was fun. It <laughs> so was that's uh, a pretty awesome success story, you know, from introduction to writing and recording songs that are going to be played and opening up for ACDC. First of all, I love writing with Tyler. I mean, we've been around each other enough that that we can communicate ideas really easily and we know when something's going to work or not work. And even, you know, working with the guys in his band, when I've worked, when I've had the pleasure of working with Caleb or Noah or Graham, it's easy to kind of cut through the chase. It's funny with the first day that we wrote, we wrote the song Loaded Dice and Buried Money. Tyler came over and we worked for probably five hours. We started a song, then it kind of fell away. Then we came back to this riff and we were like, I don't know, man is this good? Is it not good? And we're kind of developing the idea of the song. And, and it was like, well, let's go to dinner. So we go to, to dinner. We go down the street here and, and have a beer and have dinner. And we come back and boom, we wrote the song in an hour. And um, so it was good to press the reset button. Exactly. And then the next day he came in and he brought in his dobro and he was sitting here and, and he was just tuning it up. And I was like, hey, what if we wrote a song 
like this and just kind of spurted the concept of the song out. And then 20 minutes later, the song was done. It was just literally that quick. So we demoed it. We were done demoing it around two o'clock in the afternoon and Graham stopped in. So we wrote another song and demoed it that night. Working with those guys, it's that way. They're so talented and gifted at what they do. And it's, well, I mean, working with you is that way too, well, clearly. I'm lucky to be in a room, you know, when you sit down with those guys because they're just really good. Yeah. You know? Let's geek out a bit on some of the tech stuff. You know? right. So like, tell us some of what you think our listeners should know about running a great recording session. Share some tips and secrets about how to make sure your recording session goes really smoothly. Well, a lot of that is going to be preparation, I believe. What kind of stuff is typical in terms of preparation for you before well, a recording session? it depends session? on what the session is. If it's a writing session, like we've done sessions here where we've set guys up and we've written and demoed stuff. If it's a writing session, the prep work is about getting stuff set up so that people can communicate really easily ideas and try to set the environment up where everyone's at ease and comfortable. And you're, I see you're sort of pointing in circles. You mean like we're in different ISO booths, but we need to be able to communicate or we're in the same room and communicating? Uh, whatever the setting is. In this particular room, we've written in here before where we've had drums set up and we've had guitar player, bass player. That's turned into an ISO booth, this little walk-in room. Headphones set up, you know, spread around. Everything kind of patched in, so all you got to do is hit record. Number three on the number keypad. Number three. As a matter of fact, I just we just did a uh, session like that with Caleb and Tyler in between tour stops. They stopped. We came. They came over. We wrote a couple of songs one day and and uh, basically set everything up and then just hit record and and literally, you know, four hours into Pro Tools. I mean, if you open the session, it's really funny because you can hear us kind of jamming around on ideas and then you could just, hey, what about it? You hear a little bit of conversation and then all of a sudden you start to hear the song take shape and then it, hear the demo of the song. Right. And, and, you're, and you're capturing a multi-track. Right. You know. Because what happens is as you're jamming, sometimes you'll play something on accident and it's like, oh, that was cool. What the hell was that? And you say, oh, stop. And you stop, rewind it. This is cool. Why don't we do this into, you know, into this section? So it kind of becomes a way of, of communicating, capturing those ideas. For a writing session like that, I think it's important to set things up so that people can communicate and everyone's comfortable. If you're recording a record, then I think it's important to make sure the band understands the program going into the studio. This is how we're going to track the song. This is the arrangement of the song. This is the BPM. This is the key of the song. This is the kick drum this, pattern. This is the kick drum pattern. You know, some of that yeah, stuff. So you, there's an engineer named Chubba Pedix who passed away last year, who was an amazing engineer. And our band worked with him one year. One of the things, the most important thing I learned from him is it is about the bottom end of the record. In other words, the bottom end of the record has to be right. In, a, in order for everything else to feel right, the bottom end has to be right. It took me forever to understand what that means. What that means is it's not just about EQ, but it's about pattern. It's about the pulse of the song. It's about what the bass player is doing with what the drummer's doing and the trajectory of the song, how the song unfolds, what the apex of the song is, where things explode. All of that starts with the drummer's right foot. It all starts, for me, with the right foot and what the right foot does. If that's right, then everything else is, falls into place. You know, if you're making a record, like with Jet Black, for example, what we've been doing with these guys 
is we do a song every six to eight months. We do one song, and the deal is we we do the song top to bottom, mix it, master it, put it out on iTunes. And when it goes on iTunes, then they do a video of it and put it up on YouTube at the same time. So we've done this for the last two years. They've got four songs out, four videos. Uh, We just recorded five and six. We're going to put song five out and video five out. Then we're going to, I'm going to remix everything and we're going to put an EP out with the sixth song has the bait to buy the EP. The reason why we've done this process is it's allowed these guys to figure out the writing process as a band and to figure out who they are as a band. When you go to do a record, if you pull a young band out of circulation for six to eight months to do a record, by the time the record's done, the band's grown so much that the direction might be different. So I think that with a band this young, what I've decided to do is just do a song at a time. And that way they learn and and the ship kind of gets going in the right direction and they, they make wise decisions about the writing and and learn the process as they go through it. That's cool. Yeah. Well, so you talked about the low end and the, the right foot, the kick drum. What does the kick drum need to be recognizing in the song? What does that kick drum need to be respecting? What other, what other musical element should it be paying a lot of attention to? Uh, the kick drum, I think, has got to interact with the phrasing of the lyric has got to interact with, you know, the sections of the song. Being a pop guy, I always prefer there be more energy in the chorus. And then I always prefer to, to, to find out what the apex of the song is and work towards that and then right off into the sunset, you know? Right. I love that you didn't bring bass into the equation yet. You know, it's funny. It's I got to tell you, funny Richard. This is a Richard Dodd nugget of wisdom. We were having coffee one day. I said, Richard, I said, how do you how do you get a good bass sound? You know, he says, Well, mate, he says you you start with a good drummer, and I was like, I was thinking in my head, I'm doing the math and going, Okay, good drummer means I'm thinking. You know, the way I'm thinking is a good drummer is going to know what to do with the right foot. He's going to create the space, and you know, I'm thinking of all this stuff. So I'm like, well, What do you mean? He says, Well, if you have a good drummer then chances are you're going to have a good bass player. And if you have a good bass player, he'll have good gear. You'll get a good bass sound. <laughs> it's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. <laughs> he was just talking about who do you book for the session, probably. Even, you know? <laughs> I know, man. It's, it's, you, you book the best drummer in town, you're going to get the best bass player. Exactly. Right? Well, so let me jump into, let's go to the top end a little bit. Mm-hmm. Let's um, And let's stay on drums for a sec. Give us some, share some secrets for getting great drum sounds. I'll tell you what, there's a, a buddy of mine in town named Jeff Brown, who's an amazing drummer, and he's got a stunning, he's a Ludwig and Dorsey and has a stunning drum collection. He's got like 20 some odd snares and, you know, he's got like six or seven kits. And Holy sh- Does he play them at all at the same time? He's like Neil Peart. Peart. And he, what I love about Jeff is he knows how to tune the drums. And I think that that is probably the most important thing for anyone who's a you know, whether you're an engineer um, or a producer or a drummer, or especially if you're a drummer, you should be able to tune your drums. You should know that it's an acoustic instrument. You should be able to pull the tone out of the instrument without sucking the tone out of the instrument, which means you got to know how to hit the instrument. Okay. So wonderful. If you've got a great drummer who comes with tuned drums, Mm -hmm. what tips do you have for us when we're the engineer and we're the producer and it's the young drummer and we're on duty to go tune the drums? What do you do when it's your turn to tune the drums? Oh, uh, that's a tricky question because I don't tune drums. I will, I could probably twist the lugs to get things to 
sound a certain way, but, and I've watched Jeff tune them enough that I could probably go, huh, you know, I know how to, you know, it's a tapping process from lug to lug that, you know, you try to find, try to tune it that way. Find one uh, lug that sounds like if you tap it, it's a little different pitch. Right. Then you know to, to, to bring that into correspondence with the other lugs. And I know that various heads, you know, cause the drums to sound different. You know, I personally like things like darker cymbals, darker crash, dark ride, bigger hi-hats, because what it allows you to do is it allows you to open the overheads up without taking your head off, which I think gives the track more excitement when you go to mix. Darker cymbals or darker mics? Darker cymbals. To me, it's about the source, starting at the source. Right. And then I like smaller kits. I'm not a fan of, you know, 42 toms. It's, you know, with, uh, I did a, a record on this band where the drummer had two kicks and a bunch of toms and stuff. And when we started the rehearsal, I had, I had him get rid of all that stuff. He had a snare, a kick and a hi-hat. And he was so out of, like a fish out of water trying to figure out what to do. But by about two or three days into it, he got it. It was about making the song feel great. And if you couldn't do it with those three items, then you shouldn't be sitting behind a kit. And you, this is something you're not trying to figure out in the studio on the clock. This is something you work out before you get to the studio, pre-production. Yep. Here's the deal is I think that there's a responsibility that the musicians have and the producer has. And that responsibility is to show up prepared or show up expecting to pay because you don't show up unprepared and then expect the studio owner or the or whoever's flipping the tab to go, oh, sure, no problem. You guys just take your time and figure this out. You yeah, know, that's me, what labels do. Let me pick up the slack for you. Yeah, don't don't worry about that. We'll just guys, keep... Listen, I'll tell you what, guys. Don't worry about the, the, the cost. I don't want you to put it on your credit cards. I'll put it on my credit that's card. That's right. I, that's right. You hire a plumber and the plumber shows up and goes, you know what? this is a really shitty plumbing job. So I'm tell you what, I'm going to make it right. And I'm not going to charge you because whoever did this before really messed this up. So I'm just going to do this for free and it'll be right. And if you ever need anything, call me, you know, it's, it doesn't work that way. You show up, you walk in, session starts, the clock starts, you go to work. You, when you leave, you pay the bill. You, you know, said, you said shitty plumbing job. <laughs> <laughs> it's frustrating when you as the band and the artists show up at a studio and the studio guys just getting stoned and not ready and going slow and taking a long smoke break or whatever, you yeah. know, and that, that is equally frustrating. Yeah. It's like, what are you doing? You know, the, at the end of the day, you got to create an environment where everyone's happy to work and everyone's excited to be there and everyone's having fun. Yeah. I don't mean to diss on anybody who wants to get stoned, no, take smoke breaks and, and go slow in the studio. That's fine too. As long as it's what everybody's on the same page. For. If everyone's on the same page, that's what counts. You got to create an environment where everyone feels excited to be there and ready to work because, you know, even in doing all the preparation work is all the pre-production work and understanding how the song's going to go down. There's still an element of discovery there. There was a producer named Tommy Sims that we worked with. He's an amazing writer also. And the thing, the one thing that he taught me was he said it in one phrase and it was like a light came on. And what he said was, man, you just got to capture the moment. It's about capturing a moment. And it was just like, you're absolutely right. You know, yeah, you put the mics up, but we're people playing instruments and there's something that happens. And sometimes it's a mistake and it's awesome. And if you capture it, that's awesome. You know? Yeah. I remember noticing that when I was first learning how to do tracking sessions, for example, 
it felt like, not like a house of cards, because that doesn't sound stable, but like this magical balancing act where you just, you get everything, all the gear going, everything's sounding great, the band's getting hot, and you just take a snapshot right at that peak, right yep. where they, they hit the best take, yep. and you got it, yep. and you're done, you know? And you can keep going after that, and it usually comes down off that peak, and it's not so good anymore. But as long as you grab it at that one moment where it all just comes together beautifully. Yeah. And that's you, a really satisfying feeling, you know. You know what I found too is I've used this a few times when you've noticed that maybe a band or a player's thinking too much about the part and just saying, all right, we got it. We have exactly what we need. Hey, let's just do a couple of passes for fun now that we have what we need. And then that's when you start to get the good stuff because they stop thinking about it, relax and play. And it's like, there's the magic. Yeah, you know? I, I like to say that too. And I remember Brad Jones, who was really my mentor, he used to say, he was like, that sounds good to me. I'd put that on a record. Yeah. I'd put that on a record. And then he's like, you know, well, you, you guys want to go out there and just see if you can beat it. And I, I use that one. Just like, that's yeah. the one. We got it. Yep. If you want to go out and just see if you beat it, great. No pressure. You know? you know, as a band, that is an amazing thing to hear. It does. It That is a game changer uh, as far as a phrase goes. Because subconsciously, you just kind of go, oh, thank God. You know? And you give yourself that freedom to if you're going to continue doing passes, fuck around and experiment, you know? And that's yeah. when sometimes when some real magic happens. Well, so let me jump to a couple more questions here before we take a break and then we'll, we'll come back in for the jam session. Give us a secret for getting great vocal sounds or mm. recordings. This is something that I learned from a background singer named Perry Coleman. And Perry has sung on probably 50 or 60 number ones. I mean, a guy's... This guy is such a stunning singer. He's incredible. I've had two background singers in here that are just amazing. Russell Terrell, who sang on over 50 number ones, and Perry Coleman. They're two completely different approaches, those guys. Perry has been in here you know, quite a bit, and I just love watching this guy work. You don't dare give the guy any instruction because he's heard it. He knows what to do. He's sung on so many number ones. He knows where to put the background part, what voicing to use, whether it's the fifth or the third. There's two things that he does that's really stunning. His phrasing is immaculate. I mean, it's like like he'll listen to the, the lead singer part and he will match the phrasing to the, I mean, it's lined up. Point, you made a nice point. He'll listen first. Yes, he you listens gotta, you first. You got to listen first and then sing. And then when he sings, he does this thing where he self-compresses. The way he like he, I, he like he the way he sings a phrase he kind of self compresses it, like he'll roll the s's off. He does all this kind of stuff. If you soloed his vocal part, it, you might go oh, that sounds a little funny. But you put it in a track and you go, God, it's brilliant. Uh, he's I've never had to tune one vocal that he has sung in here ever. If he's singing to a lead vocal part, I'll tune the lead vocal first. So he's singing to a tuned vocal, and I never have to touch him. But the thing that he does is really interesting is like if there's a lot of S's or a lot of P's, he'll sing through his fingers. Interesting. So, so what happens describe, is, describe what you're doing. There. What you're I'm holding. doing now is I'm holding up my two fingers like in front of my lips like I'm telling someone, shh, be quiet. What he'll do is he'll sing through his fingers. So what that does is it reduces, it, it splits the wind and reduces the impact on the diaphragm of the mic. And it also kind of reduces the energy that, it, that the mic is receiving. Yeah, the high frequencies don't get through. Yeah, so he'll he'll do that. Like he'll he'll be singing, and he'll come up to a phrase, and he'll do you know, and it's just really funny. It's just <laughs> like, 
And what wrestled? The first time you saw it, like, what the hell is he doing? I know. I was just like, but it's 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 brilliant. And he's just he's stunning. He's stunning to watch. That's cool. Russell Terrell. What Russell does is Russell sings along with the lead vocal, almost like it's karaoke night, where you can mute the lead vocal and it sounds like the lead vocal. Wow. And then he'll go, okay, let's go. And he'll go, boom, jump to the third or the fifth and sing the part. And it's no, locked right it. in. Yeah, that's cool. That's so cool. it's- so study, it, study the track first. Yeah, he sings it like a karaoke, like a karaoke singer. All right, so now this is the last question before we go into the jam session. Give us some secrets for getting great guitar sounds. Right Your here. specialty, Raj. Right here, great hands. <laughs> Jazz hands. <laughs> it's, it's like a Chet Atkins story. When someone says, that's a great sound in guitar. And he takes his hands off the guitar. He says, really? How's it sound now? Um, <laughs> there's a couple of things you can do. I mean, obviously, you got to have well-intonated instruments. I think that's the most important thing. You don't necessarily have to have heavy gauge strings, but I found that heavier gauge strings allow you to dig in a little more and keep the intonation in line. It also pulls on, on single coil pickups. It pulls heavier tones out. And it sounds like the tone is, has more weight to it. So if you have like, like my Stratus 11s on it, you know, it's uh, all my guitars are at least 11s. I have found that they're easier to intonate that way, that you're, the pitch is better. Did you ever hear the story about, uh, this may be a common story for a lot of touring guitar players, but the one about Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yeah. He would start, you want to tell about his well, no, no, go changing ahead. the gauge? Yeah. Yeah, no, go ahead. Tell, well, I, I mean, I, and I, I don't, don't know, know how he's, I know that he like used 12s, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but he would work his way up to 12s. He'd start the tour. Uh, I don't know if they're like eights or something, nines, yeah. you know, but he'd start on a, on a light gauge string and then he would build up his strength on tour and he'd end up with the heavier 12 gauge high E string, you know, so heavy, heavy gauge, but amazing guitar tone. Again, it goes back to your ability to pull the tone out of the instrument with your hands and your, and I think the most important part of the equation overlooked is the right hand. If you're a right-handed guitar player is how you attack the string and how you hold the pick and how you pull the tone out of the instrument. Because if you look at someone like Billy Gibbons, who gets the fattest guitar tone in the world, guy uses eights, you know, I mean, he uses such a light gauge of string. And you would think, how the hell is he, you know, but again, it's his hands and, and how he has stuff dialed in. But yeah, you can't dig into an eight. You can't dig in. You got to be and, real polite. You got to be, eight. you got to be polite and, and conscientious and, and somewhat respectful. The other thing is, is to have great sounding amps. There's a reason why some amps cost $2,500 and others cost 400 And you can hear that under a microphone. The biggest misstep with a lot of guitar players is they use too much saturation. And, and right. they feel like that that's going to give them a bigger, nastier sound. And depending on the part and the song, it might very well do that. But if you're stacking guitar parts, if you're planning on stacking guitar parts, you can get a bigger overall sound. I found personally, you can get a bigger sound if you, if you air on the more cleaner sound and then stack those parts. But you take a player like Reeves Gabrels, who uses so much gain at times, but he knows how to use that gain where the notes still are articulate and not smeared and the instrument still has weight and it doesn't sound, I guess smeared is the best word I can yeah. think of. Yeah. This is going to sound crazy, but my analogy of too much saturation in a guitar tone is like the guitar player, it sounds distorted, but it's really kind of quiet. Yeah. You know, and it would be like you trying to imitate a giant soccer stadium full of cheering fans and go, ah, 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that's not actually loud, you right. know? It just right. sounds like, like it's an imitation of loud. Right. But you know what's funny is I love like Bob Mould from Sugar uh, or from Husker Du. You know, the Sugar records. I love those records. And the guitars are so just over the top and you can barely hear the vocal, but there's so much energy to those songs. And melodically what he does is just so right up my alley. I mean, it's just, you and know. then it turns out they're all solid state amps. I don't know. They no, might I just, be. I just made that shit up too. <laughs> I make a lot of shit up here. I've gotten great guitar tones out of solid state amps. It's what is the part? What is the guitar? What does the song need? There's a bunch of math involved in, in whatever, you know. All right. So when somebody's got too much saturation, what's the typical solution that you reach for? Uh, to, pull the, uh, to pull the gain back or change guitars. Pull the gain knob down on the amp yeah, or on the, the pedal. Or on the pedal. And um, how or, often do you pull, just remove the pedals? I mean, I'll have bands come in and I'm like, are you going to be using all those pedals on this song? Let's see what happens if we just plug you straight into the amp. Or let's yeah. go through the one gain pedal and straight into the amp. You know, again, it depends on the player. I don't like, you know, what's funny is if I'm doing a track, I'll go to a pedal as a last result. I try to lean on the amp and the mic placement and, and the mic uh, and the guitar. I try to lean on that and the hands to try to determine because as, as I'm building a track, I'm thinking about the part. Right. But the band, the young band comes in and he's got this beautiful pedal board that he's using for his live gig, yeah. you know, cause they've been playing live shows. Right. And so sometimes, I mean, I, I find it can be helpful to like, let's, let's skip some of that stuff or let's, you know. Well, you know, the question I always ask a guitar player, if I'm recording a guitar player and we're going through amps, and I've got amps stacked up and we're plugging in. It's like the question I always, how does that feel? And I think that that's an important question to ask a guitar player if you're recording. Because if it doesn't feel right coming off your hands, then you're not going to play right. Right. You this, don't ask them, what do you, what do you think? Or do you like the sound of that? It's just, how does that feel? Exactly. Yeah. And that's, my, that's one of my biggest qualms with reamping guitars. When people say, oh, we'll just cut a clean signal and reamp it later. To me, that's a huge red flag because... Unless you know what you're doing, it's a huge red flag. Because what happens is, is if you're playing through a boogie rectifier, dual rectifier, and you're playing with a lot of gain and you're doing a really heavy part, you're going to attack the guitar considerably different in a considerably different fashion than you would play through a, the front end of a basement that's opened up to 10. You know, the amp is responding differently. So if you're taking a clean signal from what you've played and you're reamp it through a completely different type of setup, there's a disconnect there that sounds funny to me. It's yeah. like... Yeah, totally. It's I mean, like it's someone who hasn't written a song singing the song. There's not that connection to the song lyrically. Yeah, interesting, yeah. You know? All right, well, we need to take a break, but share with us a mix trick for guitars. Something that's a cool thing that people should know about. I always parallel compress my acoustic instruments. Okay. So... You've got Always. The, the acoustic recorded signal coming up on one track, and then you also bring it up on a super compressed track and yep. blend that in. Yep, blend that in. And I blend it in where the compressed signal kind of rides right in the center, and then the uncompressed signal moves to the peaks and the valleys. What you get is you get the articulation of the acoustic instrument. You get the kind of the dynamic sensibility of the, of the acoustic instrument. You know, Right, but, the peaks you, are louder than the compressed one. Yeah, it's like the compressed one is the one that's not going to go away on you. Right. It won't disappear. 
So will you set that up where they both appear on a single fader or do you have two faders that are grouped together? And two faders that are grouped, yeah. All right, cool. You know, for an acoustic instrument, there's a chain that I always use and it always sounds amazing. I use a, a Neumann Gefell 582, which is a small diaphragm tube microphone with a nickel diaphragm. And I use a Telefunken V72 and I use a little bit of the LA-2A just to kind of kiss it a little bit. If I'm cutting the acoustic guitar part, I use a really light or lighter, like a medium light pick and play really kind of lightly. And what happens is the guitar sounds huge because you're not, you know, if you use a heavier pick, sometimes you can squelch the resonance of the guitar by digging into it. closes up a little bit with the shit. It's like hitting a snare drum. If you hit it, you do a stadium swing on a snare drum, you pull a road drummer off and he's doing his shit in the studio. The snare sounds, you know, sounds like he's playing on a, Dixie cup, you know? Um, but if you, you know, if you lay back and you find a sweet spot in the snare and you just do these nice moderate strokes, you could pull the tone out of the instrument. Yeah. It's the same principle with the acoustic. All right. Give us a mixed trick for distorted for heavy guitars. I use a lot of filtering. So like with heavy guitars, if I've got a, let's just say we have an intro verse chorus, I'll use a filter. I'll automate a filter to come in during the verse. So that the filter reduces the size of the guitar in the verse. And then when it hits the chorus, the filter kicks off and the guitar just sounds huge. I'll do that kind of stuff. If I want to make sure that the role of the instrument doesn't change, the grind of the instrument, you know, the, the attitude it's the of the same instrument. instrument. It just feels bigger when the chorus hits, yeah. right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's one thing that I'll do quite a bit of. I love, love, love really heavy guitars. I love cutting them so that the downbeats and the step-off notes are tight. It does a thing to you where it causes you to kind of catch your breath. It's really subliminal, but it's like, you know, I love that effect of something just going, <clears throat> you know what I mean? Yeah. And, so you play uh, it as close as you can, but then you go in and you clip, you edit the attacks. And yeah. It's right where the snare or the kick happens. Yeah. You know, the thing is, is and this is a Chubba Petty trick that I learned. Chubba, he rode me like a cheap carnival ride in the studio for about, about a week and a half because I was playing on top of the beat. And oddly enough, I was smoking about two packs of cigarettes a day. So it was virtually impossible for me to play on behind the beat. I was just always hyped up, you know? The thing that he taught me was if you put it behind the beat, the drums sound big. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He says, well, think of Led Zeppelin. Think of how big those drums sound. What you're hearing is you're hearing the transient of the, of the kick and the snare. And where they're putting the bass and the guitars are behind, right behind the beat. So the drum sound, you're creating space for that transient that makes the drum sound huge. I worked for about a year and a half on that, on learning how to play on the back of the beat. I still, to this day, if I'm in here building a track by myself, I'll still play the part the way that feels right. And then I'll go, okay, let me see where I'm at. And I'll zoom in on the transients against the drums. And 90% of the time it's on the back of the beat, which is you know, it's taken a long time to learn how to do that. Yeah, now you know what it sounds like. And, then, well, and not cool. that every song needs that, too. If you're playing, if you want to add energy, you know, then then you're going to want to play a little bit on top of the beat, you know. But biggest nightmare for me is hearing a guitar player racing a drummer to the end of the song, right. you know. Right, and That's the thing that drives me crazy. Well, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, I think we'll take a break and we'll come back in for the jam session. But before we do, Rockstar, is just a reminder to you once again, if you can want to, you can find all the show notes for this episode. We'll have links to Belltone Recording and Rogers Music. And that will be at rsrockstars.com. And just search for Roger Allen Nichols right there. 
and uh, it'll take you right to it. And if you're on the iPhone, you can just pull up the podcast app. You'll see the logo there for this episode. Click on it. There's the show notes. You can click right through. And uh, we'll be right back in a minute for the jam session. Hey, everybody, it's Lid Shaw, and I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Recording Studio Rockstars. I really appreciate you, and I really appreciate your time. And as a way of saying thank you, I've created a special mix tutorial just for you, Rockstars, totally free, called the Mix Master Bundle. With it, you get over two hours of detailed videos watching over my shoulder as I mix a song in my studio. Plus, I give you the free ebook that explains how I recorded the tracks, and you get downloadable multi tracks so that you can practice your mixes, including the Pro Tools session file, using nothing but stock plugins in Pro Tools, all of which you would find in any other DAW, whether you're on Logic or Studio One or Reaper. Maybe you're struggling with trying to improve your mix technique, or maybe you just simply don't have access to multi track files or can't record a full drum set in your studio. I wanted to give you a chance to create your own mixes from full drum drum kit, bass, and guitars recorded in my studio. The song is called American Winter, and it's off my instrumental record, Skadoosh, and it's all available for you totally free right now. All you need to do to get it is text Mix Master Bundle to 33444, and I'll send it directly to your email. Again, that's Mix Master Bundle with no space to 33444. 444, or you can go directly to mixmasterbundle.com, enter your email, and I'll send all the files directly to you. Thanks so much, rock stars. We'll see you guys in the jam session. Cheers. Hey, rock stars, it's Lidshaw. We're back here at Recording Studio Rockstars with my guest today is Roger Allen Nichols, and we're just about to jump into the jam session. Roger, my friend, are you ready to... J-A-M. I am ready to jam. Awesome, dude. When you were starting out in recording and music, what was one of the biggest obstacles that was just holding you back? How things were done. You know, how, you know, how a part was played. When I was learning how to play, we'd take a needle of the record, put it on, listen, play, needle of the record, on, listen, play. There was no YouTube demonstration of how to play the chord voicing or how to connect these devices with this. You had to find the local hotshot at the music store, ask him how it's done or observe it or just sit down and develop your ear. Interesting, yeah, because that's what I was going to say. You really had to train your ear, yeah. though. And the, of course, the outcome is you really know what the hell it sounds like. Exactly. And when you make that sound, you know if you're making it sound right or not. Yeah. If you just learn how to hook things up, you might know how to do something that's supposed to construct the sound, but you might not quite hit the mark and well, wouldn't necessarily know it. There's something to be said about, you know, being able to hear a song go, I know what those voicings are. I know what those chord changes are because your ear is developed to that point. And, and you also sit, when sit. you're producing an actual record with an actual band, there's no YouTube video to go with it. No, there's not. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> there's absolutely right. All right. So how about some of the best advice you received? I mean, you shared a lot already. What was some great advice starting out? Uh, this is, this is one. <laughs> Richard Dodd shared with me a couple of weeks ago. You know how you can... <laughs> do it, do it. He's brilliant. Um, uh, do you know how you can uh, increase the processing speed of your computer? I don't. Learn to type better. <laughs> okay, all right. So just like be faster on... Be faster doing what you're clicks. doing. Yeah. yeah. 
you know, I think the best advice is to shut up and listen and observe. Well, I mean, the keystrokes thing, that's brilliant. That's great. I mean, right. everybody, a lot of people need to know that it's learn your freaking quick keys. All right. So how about a recording tip hack or secret sauce? Something that our rock stars can use right now, making their records in their studios. Well, right now it's all about volume, obviously. And that's not everyone's cup of tea. I like to think instead of dynamic range, I like to think of scene changes. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an important thing to think about, you know, is the verse has a whole different scene than the chorus. And the bridge has a different scene than the chorus. And this, you know, there's a, again, the thing that I always go for, the word I always use is the trajectory of the song. Any good tricks for easily making scene changes? Sometimes I feel like I want to make a scene change, but everything's so one adjustment at a time with my clicky mousey that it, you know, I have to do 12 things before I have something that's a scene change that I can then decide if I even like it. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's like if you were at a party and everyone was talking and no one was listening, it would just be fucking chaos. And, you know, the verse, there's some people that aren't talking. The chorus, maybe there's a few more people. To, you know, it's really about what's being played, not what's being played. And tone changes, you know, voicing changes. For example, if you're playing a verse, maybe, and you're using, you know, let's just say, for lack of better terms, you're using open first inversion voicings or you know, as they call them around here, cowboy chords or whatever. You go to the chorus, maybe you change the inversions to give the chorus a different feel. You know, it's, I think that that's a trick that a lot of people don't even think about. Right. They think, well, if I'm playing G, C, and D and I get to the chorus, well, I'm just going to play G and C, D a little heavier. Oh, a little it's harder like, with yeah. my heavy pick. It's like, well, what happens if you, if you play G, C, and D, you know, up the neck in a different inversion? Then all of a sudden the chorus feels different. It's a scene change. Yeah. You know? Another thing that I feel like I hear on great records time to time is a part that is highlighted at the beginning of a section. And if you really listen, you notice that it, it fades slowly. It ducks away and like tucks underneath the vocal. Yeah. So, and you're subconsciously paying attention to the vocal. Yeah. You didn't even realize that that first guitar bit just settled back and got out of the way a little bit. It doesn't necessarily just stay loud the whole time. I think you and I talked about this at one point. There was a while where I was keying a lot when I was mixing stuff with a lot of heavy guitars, I'd key the snare so that when every time the snare hit, the guitars ducked a little bit. Interesting. You know, so that it allowed the guitars to be aggressive and still up front. Almost like an EDM trick. Yeah. You know, here's the thing that's really funny. In mixing a track, it's really easy to think about stuff that you don't need to think about, to worry about stuff that you don't need to worry about. The things that you should worry about in mixing a song is... Are things in phase? You know, can you hear all the parts? And when I say hear all the parts, some parts you want to feel. Maybe you don't want to hear the attack of the kick, but you want to feel the bottom end. It's funny, when you mix a song and sit down and play a song for a band, sometimes you'll have guys go, well, I don't really hear my guitar. It's like, well, really? Well, check this out. Play the chorus and you mute the guitar. Hear what just happened to the chorus? You know, it's like, that's a great way to check if you've got enough bass in the mix is just mute the bass. And it's if, that simple. If, if the body goes away, if, you know, if all of a sudden it. the sound, song sounds like it's been gutted, but you know, a lot of guys get, get caught up in trying to make sure that the articulation of a particular instrument is on point. And I don't necessarily feel like that that's the best. Well, what happens sometimes is that it just ends up that the last instrument you just articulated is the one that's articulated and the rest of them don't sound any good anymore. Right. You're right. Share with us a favorite hardware tool for doing sessions. 
something that you've always got it with you. I know I could actually reference one that's pretty funny for you, which would be a Polaroid camera yes. and a notebook, but it like something physical that you love to have on sessions. Uh, maybe tell the story of that, uh, but something physical you like to have on sessions that is, that just seems to make sessions go better. I used to take a Polaroid camera and I would snap shots of everything. I'd snap shots of mic placements, of the cue settings. I would hand the notebook to a drummer and have him sketch his kit out and mark the size of his drums and what heads he were using and where mics were placed and, you know, keep track of lyrics and keep track of, you know, and it was just basically kind of a journal of the record. And, you know, for me, that was a way of keeping track of the process. You know, the records that you and I have worked on, I've, you know, I could go back and tell you exactly, you know, because I've got Polaroids and stuff. And notes and that's a it. hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to keep track of the process. We, it is. I've kind of gotten away from that, unfortunately, because it was hard to find Polaroids and or Polaroid film. And I just kind of, my focus kind of shifted, you know, it was kind of like, I know what I'm going to do here. I don't need to reference. But it is, you know, one of the things that I don't always do well or just don't do enough of is keep track of who played what overdub yeah. on sessions because things can move fast and they can happen fast. And maybe it's, maybe it's my responsibility. Maybe it's not, but at some point I find myself often going, you know, who played pedal steel on that track? Yeah. You know, yeah. I'd sure love to know right now. Yeah. And I've never really come up with a great system for doing that. You know, you can try and add notes in the pro tools sessions. They tend to get swallowed up and yeah. buried, you know, we do a lot of recall photographs in the studio. Because of so, the console? No, not because of the console. Mostly because I just want to be able to recreate sounds that we record. So we'll take iPhone pictures of everything, put it in a Google Doc folder. It's all you know on Google Drive. I can go find it later when I want. Yeah. And that's very helpful. But it doesn't tell you like, well, who played what part on what? You right. Know? Well, so now how about a, a favorite software tool? Something that's super awesome for making records for you? Well, if I had to use one, it would probably be the SSLE channel. The, uh, you're talking about the, the plugin, the Waves plugin or yeah. something? Okay. I mean, if I had to have one plugin, it would probably be that because it's, EQ is great. The compressor is great. It's got a gate if you need it. It's a face switch. It's got a, you know, a slider on it if you need to trim something. All right. So now how about a great resource for the business side of doing what you do for a living? I think the most important thing to remember is that if you're working on a track or writing a song or working with a band and it's not going well, it's not the end of the world. And if you're frustrated in the studio one day, you know, don't listen to music, go home, relax, have a glass of wine, watch a movie or something and hit it again the next day. I mean, the most important thing about having output is you got to have input. And if you don't have input, you're not going to have any output. I do, this, do this fucking deep. Well, it's, it's true though. You know, you got to be able to, if you're going to write a song, you've got to be able to experience some things in life to write about, you know, you've got to be able to, uh, you know, that's why it's like, if I don't read a book for six months, you know, I'm hitting a wall sometimes lyrically because I'm not yeah. inspired. Yeah. You know, so it's, sometimes it's as simple as you got to be reminded it's okay to have a certain thought about something. If you're working with someone and, and someone says, no, nah, I don't really like that. It can shut down the whole creative train of thought. That can be a real detriment sometimes. If you don't just go, okay, hold on a second. You know, that doesn't mean the idea sucks. It just means that maybe we need to rethink this. Yeah. You know what I like to do? I like to always have a rule in the studio that says, if somebody really likes something in the room, then 
we need to give it a shot. Yeah. Because it's the best stuff comes from somebody feeling inspired about it. Absolutely. Not from everybody being able to be an instant critic and say, oh, that's bullshit or that sucks or I don't get it or I don't care. Yeah. Because that's easy. Yeah, that's easy. And that's a lot of times it's the root of another problem that has nothing to do with music. It's either insecurity or dismissiveness based on politics. I mean, who knows why? You know, people just, just, it wasn't my idea. Yeah. People are dicks. I I just, I don't get it. (laughs) I don't get what I'm hearing coming out of the speakers this second. So therefore, nah, you know, as opposed to somebody else who's like, oh, that's awesome. And you got to go, okay, wait a minute. Let me check it out. All right. So I'm going to jump right here forward to the final question. Tell us, Mr. Roger Allen Nichols, rock star yourself, (laughs) what is the single most important thing that our listeners can do right now? to become a rock star of the recording studio themselves. To realize that you probably don't know how a lot of it's done. It's really easy to be in a situation in a conversation with people and feel like that you have to validate what you're doing with a false sense of knowledge. It's okay to not know how to do something. It's okay to, to ask questions. It's okay to be curious about stuff. It's okay to go on YouTube and watch a video about it. There's a couple of guys that I know that the running joke is if you're on gear sluts, then you're not making records. If you have all this time to be on gear sluts, then you're not working, you know? But gear sluts, you know, those are a great source of inspiration, of answers. You know, what a, a person's advice, a person's input, a person's perspective is exactly that. A person's advice, a person's input, and a person's perspective. And asking someone about that, asking someone what their input or advice or perspective is, is okay. It doesn't mean that that's how you have to do it. But it might open the door just enough for you to go, huh, I never thought of that. And then start to explore stuff and come to your own conclusions. Yeah. We're in a business where we're trying to always qualify something subjective. That's a horrible thing to try to do. It is. My sister-in-law, Lori, is she's a children's book author. She's an amazing illustrator. And she tells this really funny story. She went to karaoke night and she said this person was up on stage singing karaoke. And they were singing, you say tomato, I say tomato, you say potato, I say potato, tomato. Tomato, potato, potato. (laughs) It's it's funny. It's just, you know. I think on that note, that's a perfect, perfect anecdote to say goodnight on and and, uh, wrap up our totally awesome, wonderfully long interview with you, Roger. (laughs) Thank you so much for having having us here, man. What an awesome hang. Lidge, it's always great to see you. Dude, I I just want to like hang out with you and and turn your speakers up really loud. (laughs) When I visit Roger, he'll play me loud ass (laughs) rock tracks that just make me want to play guitar, man. They just make me want to turn my my, my car stereo up. I I love it. I get, I'm a, I'm a 12 year old when it comes to that shit. I should learn better. I should know that. You know, it's bad <laughs> well, for awesome, years. dude. Well, let, let our listeners know how they can find you, okay. follow you and learn more. Uh, about I'm your, on Twitter and it's BT recording at BT recording, uh, Roger Allen Nichols at BT recording. Um, if you want to hear some music, I'm not on, I'm not on the Facebook. And Nichols is N I C H O L S. Yes, correct. And Allen is A L A N. Um, and I use my middle name because there's there was a famous engineer by the name of Roger Nichols, 
So I've had to use my middle name. And my motto is, when your album demands a credit, I'm your only living option. I use my middle name like a middle finger. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to hear some music, I have a SoundCloud page that has like four or five things up. It's, you know, I haven't swapped that stuff out in a long time, but Roger Allen Nichols on SoundCloud. And you might hear some of the techniques that uh, we talked about tonight as far as cutting guitars up and really aggressive sounds and that kind of thing. But uh, cool. And layering and all that. Yeah, we'll, let, we'll drop some links into the show notes. Cool. And then the studio? The studio is Belltone Recording, and it's the B Room to Electric Thunder. We share the parking lot with Vintage King and Barry Hill. If you audiophiles uh, know where that is. Well, cool, man. Well, thank you so much for thank joining you. us. And, thank you. And uh, I look forward to seeing you around the studio. Absolutely, man. man. All right, man. Cheers. Right. Cheers. Peace out. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RS Rockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.